0: Think that we can get
1: much higher than this. You are listening to Can't Get Much Higher, a newsletter and podcast about the intersection of music and data. My name is Chris Dallariva, and I am your host. So over the weekend, I was putting together this month's mailbag edition of the newsletter. As a reminder, and as I just said, this is a newsletter and a podcast. The newsletter subscribers get some additional content, one of which is a mailbag where people send in questions. If you ever have a question, Uh, Just reach out to me, and if I select your question, I will try to answer it. But there's one interesting question in this month's mailbag. The Grammys really pushed how it was the year of women as far as how many women were nominated for awards for 2024. How many actually won awards versus previous years, and were there any categories with first-time female winners? That question came from Thea Wood, the woman behind the newsletter Horizon Music, which spotlights, quote, women's contributions to modern music, end quote. As I dug into her inquiry... I realized that the answer was going to be much longer than the typical mailbag question. So I decided to give it the full newsletter treatment. While I didn't answer her question in full, I unearthed some pretty fascinating ways to quantify sexism at music's biggest night. In 1957, Sadie Wimmerstedt had an idea for a song. Wimmerstedt was not a songwriter. She was a 52-year-old widow who worked selling beauty supplies. But that would not deter her. She decided she was going to send the concept for the song to Johnny Mercer. Mercer was not an easy person to reach, though. By 1957, Johnny Mercer was already one of the most legendary songwriters of all time, winning multiple Oscars for Best Original Song and penning such classics as That Old Black Magic,
2: That old black magic has me in its spell
1: Jeepers Creepers,
2: Oh Jeepers Creepers you get
0: those
1: and one for my baby and one for the road.
0: Make it one for my And one more for the road.
1: On top of that, he founded Capitol Records, one of the most successful labels at the time. None of this intimidated Wimmerstedt, though. She just penned a letter with her idea and addressed it to Johnny Mercer, songwriter, New York, New York. Rather than tossing it in the trash, someone at the post office decided to forward the letter to ASCAP, the performance rights organization that represented Mercer's compositions. Someone in the ASCAP offices then gave the letter to Mercer. As reported in the March 12th, 1963 edition of the Dayton Daily News, Mercer first responded to Wimmerstedt in 1959, two years after she'd initially written him. He apologized for his tardiness, but told her that he would write the song. Years went by before Wimmerstedt heard from Mercer again. When he reached out, he told her that he had written the song, now titled I Want to Be Around, and was looking for someone to sing it. That someone ended up being Tony Bennett. Bennett's recording of I Want to Be Around was a huge hit.
0: I want to be around to pick up the pieces when somebody breaks.
1: Though she'd only supplied the germ of the idea, Mercer gave Emmerstead 50% of the writing credit. Since the song was subsequently recorded by Aretha Franklin, Bobby Darin, Patti Page, Perry Como, Brenda Lee, Edie Gourmet, and Frank Sinatra, Vimerset never had to worry about money again. I Want to Be Around was later nominated for Song of the Year at the 1964 Grammy Awards. It lost to Days of Wine and Roses, another song co-written by the inimitable Mercer. Among many astounding facts about this story is that Sadie Wimmerstedt was only one of six women nominated for Song of the Year during the 1960s. This is a far cry from the 2020s when 34 of the 44 songs nominated for Song of the Year have had at least one woman credited as a songwriter. This made me wonder when things changed or if they changed at all. Were women still underrepresented at the Grammys? To answer these questions, I focused on the four most prestigious awards handed out by the Recording Academy. Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist. All these awards have been around effectively since the ceremony's inception. Using these awards, we can try to see if there is evidence for sexism in both the nominating and winner selection processes. Let's start with the former. We need to establish a few things first. Primarily, over the years, the people who are eligible to receive each award has changed. In the early 1960s, for example, Album of the Year just went to the artist, whereas today, producers and songwriters involved in the album will also get a trophy. I decided to simplify things because of that. When I was quantifying the gender of the winners and nominees for Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best New Artist, I just look at the artists themselves. For Song of the Year, I looked specifically at all the songwriters because that is a songwriting award. I've elected to count women nominees in two ways, too. The more conservative approach only counts a nomination if it involved no men. For example, when Alabama Shakes was nominated for Best New Artist in 2013, they were not counted by this methodology. Yes, the group is fronted by a woman, namely Brittany Howard, but the other members are men. By contrast, my more inclusive approach did count Alabama Shakes. This approach counts a nomination if at least one woman was involved. What we see is that from the 1960s through the 1980s, women were severely underrepresented in the Grammy nomination process for the four most prestigious awards. By the 1990s, things started to improve such that nominations were getting closer to 50% men and 50% women. To be clear, a single year with a few women nominated is not strong evidence for underlying sexism in the nominating procedures. But over a longer period, we would expect nominations between men and women to be pretty much equal. As time has gone on, that is actually what we've seen. There's a similar pattern when looking at the winners of the big awards. Though women rarely won in the 1960s, it is extremely common for them to take home a trophy these days. That said, as I was looking through this data, I realized that just looking at the percentage of women who won wasn't ideal. Let's take the 1983 nominees for Record of the Year to understand why. Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson.
2: Maybe I didn't love you.
1: Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. Ebony and Ivory by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. Stepping Out by Joe Jackson.
2: Still there, still there.
1: And Rosanna by Toto.
2: Rosanna, Rosanna. Yeah, call-
1: when the Recording Academy handed the Gramophone Trophy to Toto for their groovy recording of Rosanna, you couldn't get mad about sexism in the winner selection process. There were no women nominated. As a voter, you had no choice but to vote for a man. In other words, the issue in this case isn't tied to how winners are selected, but how nominees are selected. We need to disentangle these two processes. To do that, we are going to compare the percentage of women nominated across the major awards to the percentage of women who won. Let me explain why with another example. Across the decades, there have been 20 times where a single all-male act was nominated in a major award category. For example, here are the Best New Artist nominees in 1996. Brandy, Alanis Morissette, Joan Osborne, Shania Twain, and Hootie and the Blowfish. Despite Hootie and his backing band being the only men nominated, they took home the trophy that year. That doesn't necessarily indicate sexism in the winner selection process, but if men consistently won awards where the odds were stacked against them, something fishy might be going on. That's not the case, though. Across those 20 awards where a woman was involved in four of five nominations, the all-male nominees took home the trophy 30% of the time. If we assume that each nominee had an equal chance of winning, then we'd expect that percentage to be closer to 20%. Nevertheless, it's not like men are winning 90% of the times when we would expect them to win 20% of the time. To do this at scale, I took the percentage of women who won within each decade and subtracted off the percentage of women nominated. In a perfect world, we would expect this difference to result in 0%. If the difference is negative, it means that men are over-indexing. For example, 10% of nominees were men, but they won 90% of awards. If the difference is positive, it means that women are over-indexing. For example, 35% of nominees were women, but they won 60% of awards. Here's what we see when looking at the actual data. In the 1960s, men consistently won more awards than we'd expect given the nominations. This would indicate sexism among those who selected the winners. In the 1980s, 2000s, and 2010s, the results are almost perfect. For example, in the 2010s, 28.3% of nominees were only women, and 50% of nominees had at least one woman. Within that same decade, 27.5% of winners were only women, and 50% of winners had at least one woman. Third, in the 1970s, 1990s, and 2020s, women won more awards than we'd expect given the nominations they'd received. In fact, when we look across all the decades, women have beaten expectations. Together, this suggests more evidence for sexism in the Grammy nominating process than the winner selection process. If women are nominated, voters don't seem to have a problem giving them a trophy. The historical issue has been that not enough women are nominated. It would be remiss not to mention that sexism can't always be quantified. Along with diving into the data, it's also important to listen to the stories that women are telling. It's important to note when someone as powerful as Neil Portnow, the former president of the Recording Academy, says that women need to, quote, step up, after a dearth of wins during the 2018 Grammy telecast. An attitude like that can be an issue even if it doesn't appear in the data. Nevertheless, this data gives me hope for a more equitable future in music. It gives me hope that a woman can be celebrated for composing a song on her own, rather than having to reach out to one of the most powerful songwriters alive to get it made, just like Sadie Wimmerstedt did all those years ago. As always, we recommend a new song and an old song each week. The new song this week comes out of Mexico, so apologies if I mispronounce anything. It is called La Intención by Christian Nodal and Peso Pluma. I'm shocked that we've never really mentioned the dramatic increase in popularity in various forms of Mexican folk music in the last few years. La Intención is the latest song from Christian Nodal and Peso Pluma, two of the biggest Mexican stars right now. If you've never heard any of the subgenres that fall under the very broad regional Mexican categorization, stuff like Norteño and Mariachi, you will be shocked. Your shock will have nothing to do with the quality of the music. Your shock will be driven by how distinct the music is from other styles of popular music around today. Over the next few years I suspect these styles will make a splash in some of the more prestigious Grammy categories. With that in mind, here is La Intention.
0: Luego las quitas me traes debajo En tu vida, por ser como eres, más nadie te olvida. Es estilo, tienes un cuerpo que aniquiló. Y es que cada día que pasa te pones más bueno. Me vale verga que tú seas ajeno pa' los problemas. Soy más cabrón que al que traes de cabrón. No me importa si están calenturas es pasajeras. Si en el infierno mi alma se queda.
1: The old song this week takes us back to 1963. It is called The Best is Yet to Come by Nancy Wilson. The first female songwriter to ever be nominated for Song of the Year was Carolyn Lee. In 1959, Lee and Cy Coleman received a nomination for composing Witchcraft, first made famous by Frank Sinatra. At that time, when a woman had a career as a songwriter, she was almost always a lyricist. Lee was indeed a lyricist, and she was a very good one. My favorite of Lee's lyrics are heard in The Best is Yet to Come. Though it has been recorded scores of times, I think the most underrated rendition is by Nancy Wilson. There's just something so intoxicating about her vocal. With that in mind, here is Nancy Wilson's rendition of The Best is Yet to Come.
2: Out on the tree alive, I just pick me a clown. Locked in my embrace
1: Thank you for listening to another edition of Can't Get Much Higher. Again, Can't Get Much Higher is both a podcast and a newsletter. You can go subscribe to the newsletter for some additional content that's not available on the podcast. My name is Christopher Dalariva, and I will see you next week.